Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 26, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I'm Jeff Halish. I'm here with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I am doing excellent. Uh, I'm excited to talk about the topic that we have chosen for today, and that is around the item of forensics. And uh, I, I know we've talked about you know some different things in the past as far as hard drives, a lot of data recovery stuff over the last couple of shows, but uh, you have a whole other side of your business, and that's the forensic side. And I want to kind of dig a little bit into that, and we might only be able to do so much, and we might have to make this into a two or three part, or we'll see how it goes. Okay, perfect. All right. So um, now from a, from a standpoint of there are certain things in, in forensics that you're obviously you're doing to get data back for, you know, fraud, embezzlement, somebody wiping their drive, whatever, all these different scenarios. And so if you want to, if you can just start and let us know kind of what different types of scenarios do you run into as far as when somebody gives you a call and says, we need this, we need this, this uh, hard drive recovered and this is what's been done to it. What are some of the different types of scenarios out, you know, out, out there? Well, so uh, the first thing is, uh, while I do, and you know, it is kind of the niche market that I have that is to do data recovery and damaged material, and and I do that in forensics. Uh, I do have a lot of clients where, in in my mind, the way I view this is, I'm not the investigator on the case. What happened is an investigator has a hard drive, and of course, it's dead or media of some kind is damaged or or something they can't read, and. They want someone who has the skills and understands what forensics is to do the recovery component, so that we don't uh, contaminate the evidence. That you know, the the whole point would be to try to do everything you can to make sure nothing changes on the media in the user space, so that that data is is you know able to be reconciled with whatever the user actually did and you're not contaminating it with anything that you do because one of the things that would happen normally I guess is a lot of people would just take a hard drive plug it into a computer and then do the recovery on it and that <laughs> that may make changes on it uh, a lot of data recovery guys might not have specific write blockers and things that we actually use in forensics to make sure no changes happen so so I viewed those cases as uh, I'm not normally the investigating person. Like the data itself, uh, maybe I will have to look at some of it to explain some of it to them or do something specific. But normally they're going to take that forward and they are already forensics people or something in their cases. And so I've done this recovery. I've contained the contaminants, you know, any anything that can happen to it, send it back to them. Then they're investigating it. And I do that for a, a low cost compared to what a lot of other shops charge for doing that forensics component. I normally charge about $1,200 to do a hard drive. It really depends on what the situation is. Uh, it varies a little bit more in forensics because there has to be a chain of custody and a bunch of other things that goes with it uh, where you're actually saying, you know, who touched it, what happened to it, uh, and trying to, to tell somebody or explain that in case it does go to court as opposed to a regular recovery, which would just be, I just want my files back and I don't care, you know, what the dates and times and things are that are on the files. Uh, so, so, so that's one container of what I do. And it's a, you know, an, somewhat automated portion of my business at this point because the stuff comes in, we I do the work, I get it done. I, you know, I write all the paperwork up and then I ship it back out. And it's something that, uh, you know, somebody's not sitting here over my shoulder. I'm not writing reports on it all the time. I'm just doing the chain of custody. Whereas the other piece of forensics, which is, you know, the whole established business that I have that's called Forensic Strategy Services, 
uh, we do everything. We do the investigation. We do the imaging. Uh, most of the time when we're involved in those cases, there may not be damaged media or somebody didn't necessarily call us because there was damaged media. Uh, we may still be doing recovery efforts and recovery stuff because that's part of forensics is people have deleted stuff and now you're examining what they deleted and why they deleted it. Okay. And so I'm actually doing the full investigation on that part. So now from, from that standpoint now, I, you know, so there's a, there's a component of your business where you're getting hard drives in from other investigators and basically getting them, the data back without changing anything. And hopefully they didn't do anything from the point where they picked the computer up or the, or pulled the hard drive out or, or whatever. Yeah. Generally, you know, there are already forensics guys and okay. they, they might attempt to like plug it into a write block or plug it into something and then they can't get too far. Generally, I don't have a problem with them changing it most of the time. Sometimes what happens is they send it to a different data recovery company who doesn't know you know, the processes and those kind of things. And they make changes or do something uh, as opposed to someone, what they would do with forensics. So I'm not mostly worried about them. They already know how to gather evidence in most cases and they don't, they're not usually my problem. Uh, sometimes the problem might be whoever said they could do it. Ah, uh, okay. So, okay. So now from the other standpoint though, is if when you're the guy, when you're the investigator and you're going in and now what types of situations do you know, our computers left in. I mean, obviously there's, you know, somebody can, you know, delete, you know, delete so and so called, uh, delete all their stuff on their hard drive, which we know is not actually deleted. Um, you know, but there's, I mean, is, can there be physical damages done to computers and, and things that there's a certain point where you can only recover from, you know, so much. I mean, well, sure. There's always a, a certain point. I mean, it, it, basically, if it exists on the drive, we can use it as evidence. This is where we differ from what happens in data recovery. In data recovery, most people want an entire file back. They want their Word document. They want their full picture. Uh, in forensics, that may not be possible, but it also isn't always necessary. So a fragment of information might be extremely valuable. So, okay. you know, uh, 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 something that was left behind in a page file or a hibernation file that was a fragment of somebody typing an email on a website or something along those lines. And they don't, they would not normally be something that would show up in a regular recovery. This is one of the problems with trying to send it to a regular recovery place and just trying to do something cheap or, you know, you know, whatever their cost is normally is going to be cheaper than doing the forensic side. But in the forensic side, we're actually looking at it from that standpoint and trying to say, um, you know, we are taking apart the page file and looking at the content that's in it to see whether or not a fragment of an email is valuable. Um, and, and just that fragment might, we'll have to put it in a report. It won't be something that's like a regular printable document. Uh, we'll actually have to try to do something to contain it. So a lot of times that's what's happening in, in the reporting side that you're doing on those types of cases is you're cutting and pasting clips and fragments of you know code and material and blocks and fonts and all kinds of stuff that will be in the report that might show what transpired at that time. Gotcha. So if, if somebody was writing an email to a certain person – through maybe a website at a certain time that put them in a certain place at a certain time or that, that type of thing where that might be relevant to whatever the investigation is about. 
Yeah, and, and the website's content as a whole has become a huge portion of the cases, obviously, because uh, I would say even more so than it was even just a few years ago. Um, one of the, There's a couple of tools that have evolved. Uh, for instance, there's one that's called IEF, which is uh, Internet Ev- Evidence Finder. And what its primary job is is to carve these little fragments. So instead of looking at like a whole JPEG or a whole picture or a whole thing, its job is really to look at fragments of web browser components and fragments of – of um, uh, every time you go to a website, there is – uh, say, let's just say we're using Internet Explorer as an evidence, uh, as as an item in this evidence. Uh, it has a little database, index.dat, and it would have some content in the index.dat that says, you visited this page, I did it at this time, blah, blah, blah. And there'll be a whole bunch of details that will be in there surrounding your visit to the web page. And that gets stored in this index.dat. And even if it gets deleted, even if the index.dat gets deleted, there may be content there that's still on the drive or still in what's called slack space or free space on the drive. And this tool carves that content out and reassembles that into reports and documents to say, you know, and it'll be thousands of pages. It'll be, you know, every website you ever visited, every search term you ever typed, uh, <laughs> you know, every every porn site you've, like the whole, <laughs> a whole link, all that stuff will show up. And, you know, people people don't realize that there's a huge trail of that content. And so the majority of the time, the items people ask for, um, they don't always know what they're asking for when they call you. They'd be like, well, I want to know, you know, I think my husband's transferring money and I would like to know all the banking stuff. So you go look for all the banking websites and then you compare those to, you know, whatever the court case has on record that he says that he had. Uh, if, If it's a divorce case, if it's an embezzlement case, things like that. In a lot of cases, they're trying to declare, oh yes, these are the banks I use. And then there'll be, you know, five banks that will show up that were outside the scope of that. And so you're looking for little tidbits like that. And that's where the active investigation takes part, where you're saying, um, okay, give me the list of in his affidavit that he said he only did these banks. And then you take a look at the list and you say, well, I've actually got active links and logins for six of these other banks. Maybe we need a subpoena to this other bank. Here's the account number that came from the web browser. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so there's a lot of information that people are just are not aware of that is basically logged in on your your computer or hard drive. Yeah, I, I, I would say that my my biggest thing today is that um, people think we're stupid. That's really the problem. Like, even if it's my own client, in a lot of cases, sometimes they will be like, well, I know the other side wants this evidence. Here's a cell phone that they said they asked for. And of course, for some reason, the other side has some information or somebody knows that this wasn't the cell phone that they meant because the serial number is different or, you know, they, they, they do things like that all the time. Thumb drives or one, one of the other ones, thumb drives have serial numbers on them, even though it's not printed on the on the casing itself. Right. They will they will leave a trace in the computer that says they were plugged in and what time they were plugged in and things like that. So, you know, then you ask somebody for the evidence, they give you a drive and a thumb drive and a phone that don't match it at all. And then, of course, now people are looking at what's called spoliation. So spoliation is they've destroyed evidence or they're not giving you the evidence. Uh, and that can sometimes be worse than the case itself. So them trying to hide it and destroy it and get rid of it is far worse in almost every case than just saying, here's the real evidence. And this is a picture of me with my girlfriend, you know, 
you know, things like that. Uh, I do some divorce cases, like criminal cases. I, I'm one of the few that actually does criminal cases. There's a lot of guys who won't do criminal cases because, you know, they were they might have started out as law enforcement and defense work is really the only place you can make money uh, because otherwise the police already have their own people. Okay, I got gotcha. you. So, so that's one of the downsides to doing that. If you're, if you're a third party, a shop like I am, and been doing this for you know all these years, I, I will get hired by the police and the police forces and stuff like that. And sometimes it's just to gather the evidence or to fix the evidence or do something. Every once in a while, it's actually to work on their side. But the majority of the time, they have, you know, an established set of people that they're already paid to do this, and they're not going to hire outside people for that purpose. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So, so I'm almost always going to be on the defense on those kind of things. And that's kind of like that little, you know, the blacklist kind of thing. Like people don't like people who work on defense, but you know, my opinion is, you know, everybody's due process and that, right. You know, I'm not there to defend them. I'm there to tell the truth. Right. Now, I mean, and obviously you're you're under, I'm sure, oaths and stuff like that as far as, you know, if you do find incriminating evidence, I mean, you're just, you're presenting the evidence, you know, I mean, it, it could go either way, right? Even even um, in that type of situation? It, 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 it certainly can that I might find the evidence. Now, so the situation is different depending upon what the status of the case is. So, you know, there's a criminal, he's been arrested, uh, the case is now prosecuting him, they have charges against him, now you are defending him, and I may discover other evidence in the process, but at that point, I'm bound to talk to the lawyer. So, so the lawyer's discretion, whether or not he's going to reveal or do things to, to reveal that information. So oh, okay. I, I'm not going to say, I mean, he's already being charged with a case. He's already, there's already something against him, but th- that doesn't mean that I add to it, uh, from gotcha. that, that okay. standpoint, but, uh, it, it can happen. And it does sometimes happen that what'll happen is, you know, I come up with a bunch of things. Here's my list or my reports or my review of the content. And I have to describe this in my report. And then of course the other side is alerted to that. And then they will go and look at the information. And sometimes come back with additional charges. Okay. So I, I gotcha. So not necessarily coming from your standpoint, but the, you know, once you're relaying all the information out, the other side can actually look at that information also. And well, well you don't, they, they don't get to look at your work product. So okay. you have work product, and they don't really look at your work product. Now there is one exception to this and that is in certain criminal cases, the evidence that you are looking at is not something that can be taken out of the police's property or out of the FBI, CIA, whoever's got the evidence, uh, that you have to go and examine the evidence on site. So when you want to go and write a report or do something, you may need to have some content from that evidence. And so obviously there's certain kinds of pictures and things like that you can't use, but you may extract, say, a directory that includes text files or something like that. So once you've extracted that content, you have to have a checkout process so that they basically verify that you're not taking what's called contraband with you uh, in that process. So you may have a situation where they get to look at it or review it where normally work product wouldn't be viewed by the other side. Okay. So, so that's kind of a tricky spot to be in sometimes because, you know, maybe you found something that actually says, oh, yeah, this guy's innocent, but then you've got a situation where – 
you know, the lawyer doesn't want to let the cat out of the bag too early. It might be a bargaining position for him. So you've got something that says he's innocent. They, he doesn't want them to see it in the work product. Wow. That sounds like it can get really complicated. <laughs> it, it, it really is. I mean, you're really bound to a lot of things. I mean, it's, 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 once you're basically hired on as staff of the lawyer, and that's usually the way it happens, usually it's not your client technically that's hiring you, uh, the person that you're working for. Usually your client actually is the law firm, and they tend to look at that as, you know, if you're an expert, depending on your position at what stage you're in, you may be considered staff. You may be considered part of the lawyer's staff at that point, and you may be bound by that. Now, as far as so w- when you're talking about now, obviously, to get some of this information there, you know, they have to seize a computer, whether it be a desktop or a laptop or that type of thing. Is somebody else pulling those drives out and then it's going to somebody like you that's actually looking at that drive at that point to get information off of it? Or are you getting sometimes the whole product where is there a process to go from, you know, even taking the thing apart? So that nothing. So basically, nothing's look looks like it's tampered with. I guess. Well, uh, I mean, there certainly is a, a whole process that's involved with that to make sure that nothing's contaminated. They didn't turn the computer on and use it. They didn't, you know, uh, write some files of their own there. Uh, that happens uh, occasionally, depending on who was handling it and how you know something bad happened. You know, the machine booted in a process. Either they have to document and explain it. If they can't explain it, then there's a, probably a bigger problem. Um, I've certainly had cases like that where evidence then gets. And I don't want to say, you know, a lot of people think in this terms of, oh, well, that's not valid evidence. And, you know, so you can't use that. Really, everything is evidence till the judge says it isn't. Right. So really, at that point, most of the time, you know, you're trying to prove there was some tampering, something happened, something was malicious. um, And, you know, it's up to them to defend that position if that's the case. Sometimes you just have best evidence. I mean, there are those times where you just can't do anything uh, to get some information out. And I'll give you an example. Um, thumb drives have a serial number on them, and it's kind of difficult to get the serial number off using tools that are forensically sound. So I have several pieces of equipment that are write blockers that you can plug USB devices into. Okay. And, and you can image the device. But some of the devices uh, collect the serial number and some of them don't. So it really depends on the complexity or, or the quality of the product or some things that, you know, just can't happen. And so I have one device that can collect the serial numbers from those USB devices. But for some reason, this this one particular thumb drive that I plug in does not work. Uh, it cannot read it. it. It blinks. It looks like it's going to work okay. Uh, I don't believe there's anything wrong with the thumb drive. The thumb drive actually works in a dumber write blocker. It works fine in a dumber write blocker. Okay. But the dumber write blocker doesn't collect the serial number. Ah. So now you're in a situation where if you want to prove the serial number, your good one doesn't work, and it doesn't read this device for some reason, even though it works fine with 19 other memory sticks. So you're using your dumb write blocker to get the image. But the only way you're going to be able to see a serial number from this particular device now is – you know, if you've either run out of equipment or you've run out of time, then your only other option is to try to figure out the best possible scenario you can do 
kind of like the auto mount problem that we had, you know, where we were talking last show and the previous show where we talked about, well, when you plug in a drive and auto mounts and then files fly through. And then there was several ways to disable that. And I always suggested using a write blocker. And then of course, Simon, uh, is the guy, uh, who, who I sent to, I just sent a shirt to that I had said on the last show. Um, he offered a way to, Dis- dismount it that I had forgot to mention in software where you actually can do an auto dismount. But there's one other option, which is you can change your registry setting to be uh, read, on- read only, no write, write protected, basically, registry settings for USB devices. Okay. And, and so so there is a, an additional item that you know we never mentioned because it wasn't important then to write block the device, but there is a software version of write blocking by modifying the registry so that you could do that. So at that point in time, you're just hoping everything goes right and that it's that perfect, that it doesn't make any changes or do anything. But once you're just relying on something like a registry key, you know, it's <laughs> – I, you know, I just kind of, you don't really know if you feel it, you know? Right. You know what I mean? This device, you know, a hardware piece was actually made to do the job, but then you have a, you know, software registry key that you're just, sometimes Windows just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So if so when you're, I mean, obviously when you're using a write blocker, the whole point is you don't want anything changed on there that, you know, you want it in the state that it was brought to you. The problem is if you have, if something does happen to it, and maybe it's not a fault of your own. It could be the software, hardware, whatever. And something is inadvertently changed on it. And then somebody else is looking at this later. I mean, there's so if something's changed, they can basically throw whatever you found out a lot of times, I would imagine. Well, right? well throw it out isn't really the right word. Again, like okay. I said, uh, <laughs> it, a lot of people have misconceptions about what evidence is from that standpoint but generally speaking and there is some things like Dahlberg I don't want to get into a big bad because some legal people will start going yeah yeah well this really matters or whatever but you know in my experience a lot of times even if something's damaged or something isn't working right and we didn't get it exactly right we call it best evidence and then we present it to the judge in the hopes that he will say that that was acceptable evidence and the judge gets to make that call whether or not he believes something malicious happened or something else like most of the time that's the way it comes down is that the judge is the guy who gets to make the decision about what it is that's going to stay in the case or not. Even though there are rules and there are other stuff, it's the lawyers who are making that play to the judge to say, you know, yes, we can keep it in or no, we're, we're not going to accept it. And uh, and there are things like a Dalbert hearing where you're looking at the scientific validity of it in advance of a trial so that you could say what's going to be evidence in the trial. Okay. So, so there are other things that are involved there, but you may have a situation that as long as, and, and usually if you can document it and you can say, this is what happened, this is why it happened, then you're okay. okay. Most of the time, most of the time it's like, you know, this is a legitimate thing. There was a real problem. And like I said, computer equipment doesn't always work the same as expected <laughs> to. It's like, there's, there's no reason I can think of like this particular thumb drive might not work in this particular device. Every other, I mean, I've used it on hundreds of other devices and it works fine. I'm using it now on other devices and it works fine. But this one time, it can't read this one device for some reason. Well, I, you know, and I've had several thumb drives that I will put, you know, when, especially when I'm using them for tools for fixing a computer, I'll put it into a, a USB slot on somebody else's computer and, you know, whether it's to, you know, start an ISO or, or you know, or move some information or whatever or use my tools and there's sometimes where certain USB sticks that I have will not work in that computer. And I have no right. idea what, but it'll work in, in, you know, 10 other computers that I have. 
just mm-hmm. not that one in that, you know, for whatever reason. So, yeah, there, a lot of that stuff is definitely out of our control. Yeah, I, I mean, and definitely when you're tied to certain pieces of embedded equipment, like, you know, on your computer, it might be a driver problem, and maybe you can play around with that and fix it. But on an embedded device where you're relying upon it to be this particular stable thing, that makes it that much harder that you, you just really ha- can't use it for that particular item. Right. And, and so in that particular situation, that is the only way to get that serial number off of the USB well, key? Uh, you know, your other alternative, like eventually you run out of your choices. Like even someone like me who's been doing this a long time, I only have a limited number of, of USB write blockers for that particular thing. So I have, you know, three basic ones. And if they're not working for that particular item, then especially depending on time constraint, I can still like, for instance, one of the nice things you can still do is you could still image it with the right blocker so it is protected but to get that serial number at least you've already imaged it now but now you're going to actually have to physically plug it in in order to get the serial number so that you can read it through device manager or something like that so if it shows up at all so that's kind of the thing you just really eventually run out of possibilities until you're at the limit and if you're on site someplace or out in the field someplace you're even more limited because you seldom have the quantity of equipment you have uh, back in your office, right? Or in a- yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. So, yeah, I, I can see where the complication would be. Now, I, you know, I, you know, I've read certain things or, or heard, you know, other shows talk about, you know, uh, things of, you know, like uh, somebody is seizing evidence and they're seizing a computer, but it's the computer's powered up, so they don't want to power it down, so. They have a, you know, this way that they basically are able to keep it on power and move the computer and stuff. I mean, does that type uh, of stuff actually happen? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, So not only FBI, some of the other agencies obviously have those those pieces of equipment. They're usually taps, basically. They're using some sort of tapping system. Uh, And I even know, like, as an example, I had seen something. I don't know if I should say that or not. Um, Yeah. Walmart can do it. Walmart actually has a team who has uh, a, a device that they built to do that kind of thing. So what they ha- what they do, if they have to go out into the field, they have to contain it. A lot of times what happens is you have items that are in memory or something that would actually be that you need to preserve and you may not be able to preserve it or it may cause some other problem. So basically it's kind of like taking a battery power supply and – and just literally stabbing the wires and plugging it into the wires to pick up the power so that when it's unplugged from the wall that it no longer needs the power in the wall. So it's like a UPS basically. Okay. And and but it taps the power line so you're never unplugging the power line in order to do that. So so that's really the functionality. And usually what's going to happen is they're going to use a big Pelican case, uh, those big giant black ones you always see and, you know, people moving stuff around in. And they'll just, like, basically contain the computer in it. So they'll they'll have the battery and the whole thing in there, and they'll contain it, close it, seal it, and it'll just stay on. Wow. That's that's really neat. Okay, so and, and how long do those things normally last? Well, it depends on the battery size. Uh, okay. Depending on depending on how many hours they think it's going to take to travel from one place to another, and then the size of the computer. So most of the time, it's workstations or small computers that they're doing. They're not doing, uh, you know, a server in some case. I mean, and maybe they are doing servers and have some bigger, you know, subset. Uh, the ones I've seen are, you know, large Pelican cases, uh, so that you could tap the tap the wires. There there are more portable versions as well. I've seen them at forensic shows and stuff where they have, you know, a, an inline power tapping. Uh, 
uh, kind of just a UPS. It looks like a regular UPS to, long enough to get it from place A to place B. Um, but you know, usually it's still so that they can get it back to a lab and then do the job they're going to do to contain the evidence or do something. They're not keeping it alive until court or something like that. Right, right. Um, I, I imagine, though, coming up, uh, here in the near future, probably more and more with encryption because encryption's becoming more profound now that you know people are starting to embed it in stuff that rather than take a chance on it once the majority of your systems are are running and they're encrypted, um, you're going to try to keep it alive or image it live instead of doing what we normally do to take out. And, and there's a lot of people who already are imaging live because it's the only way to contain it or it's the only way to get memory. Uh, you do memory forensics by capturing the live memory uh, from the running system. But it, generally speaking, most of the time, you have to have access to the computer, the desktop already running, logged in. There are some situations where you can do certain things to get by the login screens or, or to do that without turning it off. But, um, you know, there's some firewire bugs out there. There's a couple of things that happen. But most of the time, you've got to at least be able to get to the desktop. It's a very advanced process to try to bypass, in a lot of cases, the lock screen to get everything. So is that so? It's not something that's maybe feasible to do on site in a lot of cases. It's something that you you would have a better time doing with maybe uh, some of your better equipment back at the lab. Then, well, some some of the things first thing are you know they're time oriented. In a lot of cases, it's uh, how long is it going to take to do this particular thing? If this thing doesn't work, how long is it going to take for me to do another thing until you can finally figure out a way to get in? So that's it's really a time constraint more than anything else. And you may have more versatility at your lab because you may have more options, or you may need to assemble something uh, to do that, software, equipment, whatever. Uh, it's, it's just one of those things that most of the time is not always feasible in the field just from a time quantity, not necessarily a technology. And it's getting a lot better than it used to be. There's far more things we can do in the field quicker uh, than it used to be. And so cell phone stuff is getting quicker. There's a, there's a few other options out there you know some things do get slower like you know if you're going to capture a four terabyte hard drive from a mac it still is going to take you you know depending on how full it is could still be anywhere between 12 and 16 hours for you to image it and on site that might not be feasible that would make sense so you could get it back to the lab and actually keep it plugged into a power source indefinitely at that point and then go from there instead of doing that on site yeah that makes sense yeah except that like as an example uh, say the new uh, Max, the new Max might be coming already encrypted because they're they're when they're brand new, at least under the new operating system, they are encrypted by default. So that means if you're going to turn it off and take it back, now you've got another problem where you're going to have to deal with what's the password? What if I didn't have the password? What if they don't tell me the password? Whereas at least up till now, we could pretty much count on people weren't very intelligent, even though all it took was one click of a button to turn it on and then they could walk away for 10 hours and come back and be encrypted. Uh, they never did it. Hardly anybody did it. So most of the time we had a good chance of getting the data. But now if they're going to come encrypted and the user doesn't have to do it, now we've got another scenario. And so in those particular situations, if you don't have the login and something is encrypted, that's not something that can be easily broken, even if you're a three-letter agency, I would imagine. Well, uh, it, again, it's de it depends <laughs> on 
There's a number of things out there. There's also like zero-day exploits and things like that, and there may be a few options for some of them, but it's generally a more advanced uh, situation or somebody who has a tremendous amount of money who can purchase or pay somebody for these particular items. It's not going to be the common thing that the rest of us forensics guys are going to have. Uh, I, I don't have access to that currently to bypass that encryption without them either giving me the key or supplying the key. Uh, so at least from that standpoint – a lot of us are going to be limited for now. Usually what happens is by the time we figure out an exploit to do this, um, then a patch comes along and takes care of it. So, you know, uh, about, uh, I don't know, about six months ago, there was a little black box that was released that has a little connector for a keyboard, basically. And it pretends to be a keyboard. It's not a connector to a keyboard. And you plug it into your iPhone and it would attempt, and there's a little more to it because there's some things you can do for power and stuff like this. And this little black box attempts to crack the four-digit passwords so that, you know, whenever you had four digits, you could not try all 9,999 9, tries. Uh, this little box would do that and basically find the password and crack it. But then the next release of iOS kind of fix the timing problem in that so that nobody can use that box. So every, you know, now the whole point ends up being it was as long as the phone was pre, you know, 8.1 or whatever. Now you can uh, crack it that way, but you can't do it after. So there's, there's some variety of things like that that may be fixed along the way as people discover it and it becomes more popular. If it's not very popular, most of the time they won't expend any energy on it. So when you write a, you know, a nice, you know, uh, you know, news brief and release it. And now the hackers are all happy about it on, you know, Facebook. That's when they fix it. <laughs> so if, sometimes you need to keep those secrets secret. <laughs> right. And that's entirely the point of zero day exploits is to keep them secret. So no one knows that you now know how to crack it. So, well, and that, you know, that was an ingenious thing that they did because basically all they did was they, they set it so that normally when you go and put your four digit code in, you only have so many tries before it, it locks the phone or, you know, in some cases you can set it up to where to lock it and wipe it and that type of thing. So in this particular case, it, they basically, it, it they never let it get to the next step where it was basically, um, you know, it was resetting it. So yeah. you could try it, like you said, you know, yeah. 999,000 times. You could hardwire the power to the power so that basically it would cut the power. Right. Before it wrote the transaction that said I had a counter. Exactly. So, so before it did its count, it would basically, but you know, of course, now you've got the cut in the power and then the recycle. So there's a little more time involved in the process. But you know, you just sit in the corner and wait for a week, and it's better than not. So yeah, and all, I guess all they did to fix that was they put the the counters on the front side of that instead of on the back end now. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know what the bug fix was. I don't really know how they how they kind of. Fi- but I mean, I guess it wasn't really a bug because it wasn't really a problem unless you were, you know, creative enough to go in there and wire and do these right. things. Right. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. So from so I mean you know like we said basically once encryption comes in, and I don't know I mean. Are, are, I guess are criminals going to get to the point where they they are starting to encrypt everything, or they're knowing, or somebody knows how to encrypt it for them? Or, um, well, I, I think I, I don't think it's so much necessarily thinking in the terms of the criminals. I think it's everybody 
is wanting their own privacy. So everybody's doing it. And right. so it's not really necessarily a problem because it's a criminal that did that. Although obviously, you know, him defending that in a case, that's going to be the problem, right? So, uh, but now you're talking about if it's for the masses and it's done across the board, then either it stops or slows everybody down or business in that realm. So it's, you know, it can hurt hard drive repair business from that standpoint. You know, the problem's not going to be we won't know the key because the client is going to tell us their password if they want their data back. Sure. So I'm not concerned about that part, but what happens is because it's encrypted, now our software, our tools don't look at it as a file system. They see it as garbage. And so you've got to collect the garbage and then decrypt the garbage and wherever there might be damage might actually cause a problem in the decryption process. So not that it can't be done, but it's 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 definitely a little hairier, especially on large databases or Outlook PST files and things like that, where a small amount of damage in the right place can be detrimental if it's encrypted. You've just added that layer of complexity that slows you down or stops you from doing a file you would have been able to do otherwise. Wow. Okay. So I, as far as what, what you do, you know, as far as, I mean, obviously, you know, we know that if somebody erases a drive now, do you, is there any point where somebody can basically, if they take a hammer to a drive, is there any way to get information off of that drive in some of these cases? Well, again, a hammer to the drive matters what you hit and okay. how much damage you do. So, I mean, if you if the platters are still intact and you can read the label and you can, you know, get some information from the board, you might be able to to solve that problem. Uh, I mean, it's one of the first ones that I ever did was a drive that was shot. And so <laughs> no but, kidding. But it passed it passed through the aluminum casing and through the board and Physically, I mean, I ended up replacing a head assembly, but it was one of the first ones that I did for legal cases and doing recoveries, and that was kind of the start of that kind of niche. But it was rebuild the board, uh, you know, replace this head assembly, and I still did the recovery, and it was still fine. So you can, depending upon what that is, uh, uh, you know, from a damage standpoint, there's obviously a lot of things that can happen there. The other thing is, too, one of the things people don't realize, just like the issue I mentioned earlier, spoliation – People think, like, for instance, let's say you send a subpoena to a person on a Friday afternoon and you say, I'm going to come and collect your computer on Monday and we're going to image it. So here is the you know, letter stating we don't want you to destroy anything. Make sure that you don't delete anything this weekend. You don't do anything. He's going to be over the weekend. He's going to be like, well, I'm not going to sit here and let them have the evidence. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to find this really cool wiping tool and I'm going to go wipe those sectors or do something. And the thing is, no matter what you do, there's pretty much something that's going to be left behind. Uh, even if you tried to take the hard drive out and put it into another device, there's going to be a pattern that's going to be on the drive. There's going to be white. There's going to be space that should have been blank that's not blank. There's going to be slack space. There's going to be things that when a forensics guy looks at it, he's going to go, that doesn't look right. There's, there's not like now you've actually got somebody who's going to testify against you that says, well, you know, this isn't proper. He actually destroyed the data, even though he got rid of the data that he didn't want you to know about. Um, now he's actually done something that's more, uh, criminal intent, you know, it's more, the intent is worse from that standpoint. And you're looking at a spoliation claim as opposed to just whatever 
the bad thing was he was going to do. Right. So yeah. So they're so they're getting them on you know basically hiding evidence. Well, it, if it was a criminal case, they wouldn't send you the you know the the letter and the subpoena saying I'm going to come and get your. They're going to come get it. <laughs> if it was criminal, they would have just come and gotten it. So that means that it, you know in that kind of case, it would be a civil case. And in the civil cases from that standpoint, or most of the time would be civil. There's also uh, other times charges can be filed if you're, you know, playing with money and doing different things. But at least from that standpoint, in a civil case, you don't want it to end up in an issue where you are now accused of spoliation and it's a, it's, you know, a bigger deal than it was. Yeah, because I, you know, even I guess I can see that from a civil case, but I, you know, I'm thinking I'm going, why would they send a letter before they were going to come out instead of just seizing well, the computer? Well, most of the time, most of the time in civil cases, you know, they will do that in advance. So they'll say on this day at this time, we're going to come and image the computer and they get two sides agree or not agree and the judge gets involved or whatever. But generally those are scheduled events. Those aren't immediate events that somebody just shows up and takes your stuff. So, so those instances are usually criminal and the police are showing up and they're taking your stuff or FBI or somebody else. So, you know, there is there is some differences there from that standpoint. And you have to, you know, kind of take into account that the, the real big problem is there's so many ways to analyze data. There's so many remnants that are left behind in the system and the USB keys. There's dates on your drive. There's dates on the hard drive. You can't take a hard drive out, replace it with another hard drive and not make it detectable. Or, you know, there's, it's extremely difficult for you to fool someone else who wants to find the puzzle that says that you did something. And so people always think they're smarter than that guy. And I'm not going to be able to tell from that standpoint. And 99% of the time, there's always the one who gets away, but there's 99% of the time they're wrong. I can tell something happened. I can see a pattern. I can show a pattern. I can show where there would have been data that would have been there for usage. There's uh, files that aren't deleted. There's USB entries that are still there. And when I present all that stuff, of course, the judge looks at the other guy and goes, you're a dumbass. <laughs> yeah, nice try, but uh, yeah, yep. no go. <laughs> I mean, I've had my own clients lie to me before, and I, I have sat in rooms before with them, and I just looked them in the eye and said, look, I'm going to find it if it's there, so you just may as well just be honest with me and tell me the truth. They'll still lie. They'll still, they'll you know, they're embarrassed. They don't want people to know they did something or whatever else, and they'll just lie, but it, it doesn't last long. Oh yeah, you know, same thing. You know, hey, uh, have you ever dropped this computer before? Oh no, I've never dropped that computer. <laughs> it's, yep. it's like, well, why is the whole side cracked then? <laughs> well, I, I've had a few. I've had a few cases. Like, here's an example of one. Like, uh, so there was a a young girl who was accused of doing something that she shouldn't have, or somebody said she did not do. Kind of basically, she somebody accused her of doing something, and then that's a whole long story. Anyway. The whole point ends up being is that so I'm examining her computer. Uh, her father's actually paying the bill, and we're doing this whole process. So while I'm examining the computer, uh, it's kind of obvious that she like cleaned stuff up and did stuff to try to make it look like she wasn't the person that did these things. But at some point in time, she had plugged her phone into the computer and copied some music onto it. And of course, one of the first things that iTunes does when you first plug it in by default is going to image your iPhone. So there's a backup of the iPhone in another directory. And of course she was only looking for files that she thought were going to be responsive and delete. Well, her phone had everything. It had text messages. It had stuff like all the stuff admitting and talking about doing it and doing these things. And it's all in the backup 
all sitting there in that directory. And once I saw the backup, I just parsed the backup. And of course, right away, I had the smoking gun that said she did do it. Right. And so, you know, those are the kind of people who are like, well, you know, uh, they didn't ask for my for my iPhone, so you know, forget it. Uh, people, you know, do drop it. You know, oh, oh my God, there it is in the toilet. It's a toilet phone now. Uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. But, but you know, they they do forget certain things. Like, you know, most of the time now we don't plug our phones into the computer unless we're looking to get something specific, copy a movie off of some large file, or syncing some photos. But right. Right. That those are the situations now, and and the iPhone backup, uh, and the iPhone backup can be cracked, and there's passwords, and this all that can happen. So uh, it, it's really not extremely difficult. It's not. I'm not going to say it's always perfect or whatever, but you know that was one of those examples where she thought she was smarter than everybody else, and that she, she got rid of all the evidence on the computer. But of course, this copy of the phone, she wasn't even going to know it was there. See, I, I, I don't. I guess I don't understand from that standpoint of why people would. If you're doing a criminal activity, why would you use text messaging and photos and you know all maybe just I don't know different things that would incriminate you. Even though you would think that I, I can't think in my head where I go. Nobody could ever if, see if this. If you're if you're being fraudulent, if you're trying to do something, then you've got to use the same sources everybody else is that you're going to convince them. If you're going to say like you know like. Today, like most of the time, people go, look, um, why don't you go to Western Union, put some money in the mail? <laughs> like Everybody knows right away. Right, right. Western Union, I'm not, you know, once I sent the money, it's done. You don't have to give me anything. Right. So, you know, the majority of the time, you don't want to do something that will cause somebody to not understand. Like, you know, when people say, oh, do you take credit cards? Well, you don't know right away that you got a, you know, fraudulent credit card. If the number is approved, then you think it's good. Right. Of course, I don't really understand, and this is this is still baffles me to this day. So you get you run a credit card and you get an approval code, and you now have charged you know a thousand dollars to this one client, and the credit card company says it's good and they give you an approval code. Well, then later on, if it turns out it's fraudulent, the credit card company reverses the charge, and then you are the one holding the bag. You're the guy who charged the thousand dollars that they gave you an approval code for. What the hell is the point of getting an approval code if at the end they're just going to say, "Well, screw you, we're taking it back." Right? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I've never understood that because I've right. there's been we quite a few no people. We have no way of verifying the fraud. Right. We have no way of knowing that this guy standing in front of us is not Joe and his name is Bob. Uh, you know, the credit, that's what the approval code was supposed to be for. I, I think in, I, well, I think that's one of the reasons that they want to go to a, like a chip and pin too, for, you know, to try to avoid some it's, of that stuff. But that's, that's not any different. It's not good. That doesn't solve the problem. It, well, as far as it, you would still have to know, know like a, a four digit code, right? Well, and this is just off the top of my head. If I remember correctly, for some reason, when target got hacked, did they not say that they also got pin numbers? I thought in the reports and stuff that I had read, and, and so don't quote me, just go back and look and see. But yeah, I'm not sure. I'm sure that they, for some reason, were storing PIN numbers and had PIN numbers for the content that got stolen. So uh, if I recall correctly, so I'm sure somebody will send me an email and tell me I'm wrong or whatever. Well, I'm just, mine was, up, but. Yeah, mine was one of the cards during that period of time, and they replaced all mine. So, But it, nothing, yeah. nothing happened. You know, They had the information. Um, I don't know... No, I think you know. I think you might be right, though. I think if I remember, uh, remember correctly, there was a piece of uh, software in there that was basically when you ran the thing through and you punch in your your password or your mm -hmm. four digit pin, it was capturing that information and then sending it out. 
mm-hmm. or logging right. it and they would come in and collect it later or whatever. Right. Something like that. So, but there, yeah. there was, there was something like that, but, but ultimately there's, there's, when it comes to these kind of things, there's always going to be some way for them to get around this. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, the only thing that tends to work better is two factor authentication kind of stuff. At least there's some option there, but it's, you know, this, that's, slightly better but that does not necessarily solve the problem and there's always someone who has some creative way of getting around the process so uh, i'm just saying that that's to put it back though on the vendor that you got an approval code that's the problem that i have with it a chargeback or something yes you're stuck holding the bill while somebody approved it and said it was good yeah they they shouldn't be able to do that it's either it's either good or it's not good (laughs) yep yeah and and, and there appears to be no easy way to fight the credit card companies there's no way to to actually deal with that it's like they're like their own police and no one else really steps in yeah that's true yep so don't use credit cards just go back and use (laughs) old-fashioned cash right (laughs) well nowadays it's hard to use cash there's some places won't let you use cash anyway yeah it's it's real and that's not forensic (laughs) stuff but i'm just making a point i I have dealt with cases before though where you know a mexican restaurant has two swipers and you know one person is using a hand swiper and they're collecting credit card numbers the whole time you know they're running the regular credit card through the machine but they're also slicing it you know through their own and collecting that information and then turn around and selling it as well and of course you know then the mexican restaurant gets blamed for it because Every one of those people had been to that Mexican restaurant. Right, right. Yeah, I, I remember, you know, my son had gotten his uh, credit card uh, at some restaurant. Uh, they basically got the number, and all of a sudden these charges came up for, you know, I live in Michigan, and this was like down in Ohio. People were putting gas in the car and yeah, you know, a couple right. of small purchases, and we're like, oh, no. So, you know, we called up, and they reversed everything for us from the bank. It was no big deal, but it was just kind of like, Really? You know, and then yep. are they going to go after that person for, you know, the, the few hundred dollars? Probably not. No, it's pretty rare. They catch people or do anything. They just end up writing it off or doing stuff. But there are times they do file a report, do something. I have, I did have one claim that somebody had years ago on me where they bought $10,000 worth of stereo equipment. And eventually the police actually figured out it was this, uh, this guy, it was like a, he was actually in the army or something and he was at you know, a base and they arrested him or something. So okay. there was, there was some whole process with that, but it took them, you know, six months or a year, but it does occasionally happen. It's just extremely rare. I pretty much would consider that it's gone at that point, but, but I do end up working on a bunch of a variety of cases. That's kind of, you know, the nice thing doing forensics from the standpoint, some things are kind of the same and kind of this, you know, the normal kind of process of divorce is the normal process. There's always these certain ones that are about the same, but then I also get to learn a lot of other people's jobs along the way to do the job and the investigation on some of the content that I'm dealing with. And that's pretty cool. I enjoy that part. Yeah. That would make it interesting to, you know, to have that changing all the time. What's, what are some examples of like, you know, cause I'm just thinking, you know, anytime I think if you're doing something nefarious, you know, I, I know there's a difference between criminal and civil, but what would be considered like a civil case where somebody would give you, like we were talking about before, a letter ahead of time saying, hey, we're going to come image your drive? Uh, two corporate companies that are battling with each other, uh, some overlap in some cases. Um, I have a lot of cases, uh, not not you know, not a few, a lot, uh, corporate espionage kind of situations. Somebody got some files from somebody else. Somebody hired somebody and took some files. Some people embezzled some money. There's uh, internal 
uh, companies running inside of companies. I see those things all the time. Also, like you're the business owner, these people you trust, you've been there for 10 years. What you don't realize is that they're, you know, not really working on your stuff during the day. There's three or four people who started an eBay store five years ago and they're selling stuff on eBay all day long using your shipping, taking your stuff. So you, you may get notices from corporate to corporate or from corporate to home, things like that, where those guys then now want to know what they have processed on their computer, and now we're going to send a subpoena to get a copy of your computer. So those are almost almost all civil cases, though. There's some agreement along the way of when these things are going to appear, when you're going to get a copy of them. It's never, you know, dang it, here's here's my phone right now. Like that <laughs> that doesn't happen. Uh, it's it's always some scheduled event, almost always in a civil event. So, uh, but a lot of a lot of corporate fraud and espionage and copying and you know stealing co- client lists see if somebody who used to be a salesperson here left and took a client list with them those are the kind of things you're normally okay looking. i got you that makes sense yeah and so i mean people so people are stealing this stuff obviously like a client list or something like that probably just using a usb key right yeah most of the time it's you know an external hard drive dropbox uh, ah, Gmail, okay. uh, you know, once they've gotten it out one way or another, whether they're using a web browser or, you know, Dropbox or a USB, either external drive or thumb drive or something like that, it's almost always one of those things. It's uh, occasionally I see somebody took a cell phone and then just took photos of the screens. So <laughs> that happens. Um, but uh, most of the time, it's going to be one of those other three sources primarily, or they just took the whole computer altogether. Or, you know, the other big problem that a lot of companies have that they don't realize is they have people use their own home computer. And the problem is that's not the company's property. So when you have them doing work on their home computer, yeah. then the content that's sitting on that computer, while you might consider it your property, it's very difficult to say that okay, I had them use their home computer. Here's their home stuff. Now give me my stuff back. Yeah, that's a good point. Because uh, at least if you provided them with a with a business computer, then you could always, you could seize that no problem. Right. Well, when you provide them with a computer, you also need to, you know, have a, you know, kind of a little contract they need to sign that basically says, this is a work computer. This is not for your home use. This is not for your, you know, this is just for company stuff. When you're done, you're going to return it. You're going to not delete files. You're not going to rate this as company property at this point. I'm paying you to produce. Like those are the things that need to be said when you're handing somebody that computer in the process. Just like you would if you were giving somebody, you know, keys and a code to your security alarms and things like that. Uh, for some reason, they don't think about those things in the computer side. No, and I think even in a lot of situations, a lot of people think that maybe that's kind of, I don't know. It, it's like, I, I'm going to believe, you know, negative stuff in you before <laughs> before I believe positive, even though I'm hiring you to do something. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. But yeah, in today's day and age, you definitely have to have contracts for everything you do. I get customers all, you know, all the time that tell me, you know, I tell them, hey, yeah, read and sign the back of this. And they look at me, do I have to really read this? I said, no. I said, but basically it's telling, it's telling you that I'm going to be as, you know, as safe as I possibly can. And I'm going to, you know, not share any of your information. And, you know, uh, it's giving me permission to work on your computer. Right. So either sign it or don't, you know, but you know, everybody just signs it. Nobody, barely anybody reads. I think I've had maybe a handful of customers in the last five years that actually sat there and read the whole thing. And it's a page. 
Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, so. I, I have a three page contract every time that I'm hired to do a case. And most of the time they don't read it or make any modifications or anything either to it. And it's, you know, it, it's, you know, the premise of the legal side yes. from a standpoint of what they're going to do. And so, uh, you know, I kind of feel the same, like, you know, this is, if you want me to work for you, th- this is what you have to do. Absolutely. And most of the time they're in a hurry at the beginning. So they'll do just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that says, but yeah. Okay. I agree. Yep. Pretty much. That's what happens. They're just like, oh, well, I need this forensics case processed and I need it tomorrow. And we only have, you know, six hours to get this phone done. So, you know, I'll sign it here. Here's some money. So maybe, uh, you know, maybe on the uh, next show, maybe we can, you know, dive into some more things. Um, you know, if you think of some things that we can bring, you know, that that we can talk a little deeper about some of the forensic stuff that, you know, that happens in the industry and in stuff that you're dealing with and just kind of go from that standpoint. Cause I think we've, we've covered a lot of good stuff in the show, you know, is kind of a beginning step, but I, there's a lot of things about forensics that I didn't know. And, you know, I, I look at it from a, a standpoint of, you know, I, forensics I know is, is, you know, from the movies I watch and that's in right. most of that's probably bogus anyway. So, well, well, some of it is, and maybe, and maybe if you write some of those things down, you know, it's kind of a blurry line for me now. Cause you know, when I'm watching a movie, I'm like, Oh, that's bull. And right. That. Right. But you know, I, at least from that standpoint, if you know, if you think of some questions and some things that actually happened in some shows, and then ask, uh, you know, we can kind of start down that path from that standpoint. But it's it's hard for me to know anymore what some people think are myths and what some people, you know, it's it's just hard to kind of get that. You know, the the old one is always the camera that can zoom infinitely in parking lots. You know, that's right. one of the things. Although now. There are some high quality systems that actually can do that. So we have moved into a realm. It's not going to be your normal, you know, here's every parking lot camera. You would, there's some high end companies now, though, that are producing uh, HQ quality capturing equipment where you can zoom down to their pocket and see what's in their pocket. So there are things like that, you know, I don't mean through their pocket, but like something sticking out of their pocket right. or something. So, so it does exist now. It's just they may not be as prevalent. Um, and, and all the places, but you know, now it's hard for me to call it BS. Right. Well, you know, being in the military, I used to tell everybody that, you know, basically when you're seeing something in a movie, you know, some new vehicle or something like that, that, that thing was, uh, you know, in service, you know, or Five in years, secret, you know, 10 years ago, sometimes even yep. up to 20 years ago, uh, yep. it was, it was, it's been around for a long time. So, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, the one the one that I always like to hear about because it's the uh, Ethernet gun. You know, the uh, there's a there's an actual gun that looks like a rifle, and it's connected, you know, through some very large computer systems. But you can point this gun kind of like they do with Bluetooth and other stuff, where people have made Bluetooth capturing devices. Right. That there's actually one you can point at, you know, a plenum cable and and interpret the content that's being read from the cable just by pointing it at the cable. So now we're going to have to have cables that we have that are shielded and <laughs> wrapped in tin foil. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe so. But, uh, you know, apparently the military has this particular uh, item. I don't know very many details about it, but I've I have heard the story. So, yeah, there's there's quite a few things in the works, I'm sure, that we would be totally scared of in today's day and age. But it is what it is. And yep. I will I, I'll encourage everybody out there that's listening to this show that if you have questions about forensics, and for Scott, because I know nothing about it, but go ahead and send us send us those emails in, and you know we'll answer those questions on the show. Because I find this subject very fascinating. I find you know some of the things that are that are being done out there to, you know, either help people out or you know or catch criminals. I, I think it's uh, 
very interesting, especially when it comes to tech, because tech can be sometimes very complicated. But when you've got a, a guy like Scott who's been doing it for so many years, you know, there's some things that are, oh, that's nothing. We, we just, we're going to do this and we're going to plug this in over here and we're going to, you know, get this information off. And I go, huh? Yep. <laughs> so. yep. Every once in a while, you know, I'm amazed in the Star Trek way too, you know, that all of a sudden there's some new thing that came out and it's like, wow, really? We have this now? Right. Um, you know, like this happens occasionally, but it's, you know, it's pretty rare. But, uh, but at least from that standpoint, please, you know, feel free for anybody to email or come up with some questions and some things. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the only surprising thing, and it might help people come up with questions and do things is, um, you know, a lot, a lot of forensics work isn't really necessarily the tech tech work itself. A lot of it is, uh, the court side, the, the, when you're involved with courts, now there is like three different ways of looking at forensics. You got military, you have the people who do corporate, who a lot of times aren't reporting to anybody except the board or something internal. And they have processes, which are not quite the same as what happens when you get to the court side. So then that third party would be the, you know, court, you know, the police and those kind of things and going forward, uh, in the public realm, like what I deal with. And that's kind of the shocking thing is, you know, it's, it's a lot about, the subject matter, how complex is it? Is this complex enough to explain to a jury? Is it too complex for the jury? Are we going to even make more than one point because they'll get lost at two points? You know, things like that. And so there's, there's, I would say like 70%, 60 or 70% of my stuff is actually dealing with that kind of stuff right now. And then applying the tech stuff from the work that you did in the process to get to that spot where you're explaining it to the court and writing affidavits and uh, doing depositions and then going to trial. Well, maybe that's something we can start talking about in the next show, you know, talking about the court side of it, because I'm just thinking there was a case a while back where they were trying to think, you know, they had these text messages that they had to read, you know, so the recorder could record them and, you know, they could present it to the jury and they had emoticons in the text and they didn't know if they should say what the emoticon was or if that would change, change the cant of how the jury looked at that situation or Right. You know, and, and so there are a lot of things, I think, when it comes to to tech, not just getting the information, but how to present it so that, it, you know, either from a defense side or a, you know, uh, the other side is, you know, they're, they're both trying to prove their case. So it's like, how do you how do you make that work for you? And, you know, I, I think it can get very. Uh, it can get very interesting because, you know, I think even today, ask a lot of people what emoticon is, they'll go, what? Yeah, right. You know, so it's like, is it relevant or is it not? You know, those types of things. Right. Yep. So. And and that people will think you're snide because you put a smiley face and right. You know, and who knows? Everybody answers with LOL smiley face. Um, I mean, you just I'm just you know, kidding. Hey, <laughs> you know, patterns. You know, and and that's the other thing too. A lot of times, looking at it out of context actually matters because if right. they normally always do the same process all the time, it becomes with your keyboard or your phone becomes a normal thing that you just do, and you don't even think about it anymore. It's like when you sit in front of your computer and you have to type your name your fingers just know what to do. Right. And so there is a process there. And we, we can talk more about that stuff uh, next time. Yeah. I'm happy to have been on the show today. Uh, let me say one thing about the, uh, I have an upcoming class in June in Atlanta. So if anybody's interested in doing the data recovery side, the platter, the head assemblies, and then I do delve in a lot on the data side as well, I actually have uh, about a day and a half or so that's dedicated strictly to how data is reassembled on your machine and all these things that you don't know about your computer that 
basically help you reassemble and go after the data. Uh, so I have a class in June in Atlanta. I have a class in August in Washington, D.C. And then in December, I am supposed to be in Australia. So uh, please feel free to go to myharddrivedie.com and email me about any of those classes, and I'll be happy to give you some information or pick up the phone and call me. I'll be happy to talk to you. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely check Scott's stuff out. I know I've sent a couple people over there and, uh, you know, they, they really have an interest in, in doing something like this. And I think this is going to get, you know, <clears throat> you're going to need these types of skills as we keep going forward, um, especially when you're doing, you know, some types of computer repair. You've got, you know, with everything from the new solid state drives that have, that have been out and, you know, other hard drives and stuff like that. This stuff's going to be important for people. You know, to, you know, not only get your information back, but also, you know, maybe if you're interested in doing this side of it, you know, it's something that you can uh, you can pursue. But, yeah, definitely getting down to the nitty gritty and learning all that that deep stuff is uh, is what I find really interesting. So uh, I, me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on a show and, and share with us, Scott. And, and, and uh, thanks for all that and uh, all that you do for this show. So appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. If you guys have uh, questions, like we said earlier, please email us at mhdd at podnuts.com, and we will get those answered on the show. If you want to leave a voicemail, we can also play those on the show, too. You can call 1-888-697-0162. And if you guys could do us a favor and you are enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and review over on iTunes. That'll let more people know about this show. You guys can also help support the Podnets Network. The next time you're shopping at Amazon, go to podnets.com slash Amazon. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.